Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. Most of the new protocols being launched in the Web3 and DeFi ecosystem leverage what is called proof of stake as the mechanism for securing the network. And critical to the success of proof of stake are the stakers themselves who lock up tokens to secure the network in exchange for interest in the form of more tokens. My guest today is Andrew Kronk, one of the co-founders of Figment, one of crypto's largest staking organizations, which recently raised a $110 million Series C round. And in this discussion, we talk about the role of staking in securing networks, how enterprise organizations can participate in crypto more than they do currently, what's necessary to drive further adoption of Web3 and DeFi, and much, much more. Andrew is a fascinating guest. I think you get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Andrew. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. I'm super excited for this topic in particular. And just, you know, I've known you for a little while and seeing what you've managed to do with Figment has been really, really impressive. But before we get into that, why don't we start with your background and maybe how you ended up in this crypto Web3 world? Yeah, uh, thanks, Sean, for having me on. This is going to be fun to chat. I can share my background and, and I think maybe... What folks can take away from it is there's many ways you can end up in this space. And we're very welcoming of all sorts of different backgrounds into crypto. But mine was uh, sort of a startup path. I moved to Chicago to work at Motorola. And I learned that I was pretty crappy at, at, as a software engineer and also was not very good at big companies. I'm like the oldest millennial. And so I have all those tendencies where I'm asking, why are we doing this? And here's some ideas. And can I be involved? And so that didn't really work well as the lowest on the rung end of a big company. So I, I switched to startups. Figment is the fourth company I founded. The first one was a bootstrapped in my apartment and we sold it in Chicago. The last one I did before before starting Figment was a, a database company called Tempo. We did Techstars and VC and mm-hmm. kind of went through that whole thing. And yeah. after after we finished... Um, we finished that that process and we, we had a sort of an acquire exit. I had some t- a lot of time to think and I, and I thought I was done with startups. And so we can get into the idea with Figment and all that later. But just suffice to say, I had sort of a, a more traditional product type tech background, had done a number of startups. And I think that's a decent way to prepare to enter this space. But there's lots of lots of needs and, and lots of different ways. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when, I, when we had first met, you were, I think it might have been after Tempo, but you were doing, yeah. you had built up all of these relationships with folks that were in product roles and engineering roles in particular, yeah. and became sort of a matchmaker for them. Tell us a little bit about that experience. And I think specifically, because I think it's, I think it's hyper relevant to what you're doing now, mm-hmm. maybe what you mm-hmm. learned about attracting, particularly like a player type talent into an organization. Sure. Yeah. So after we we exited the third startup, I my, our wife and my wife and I planned that that was going to be it. That was sort of the end of the startup run. My son was born a week after the the company transaction closed, and so I thought, okay, great, great time to switch gears in my life. And so um, what we did uh, after the earnout period is I went and started a recruiting company uh, with my then partner Matt Hoffman. That still mm-hmm. exists. It's called Refactor. I think it's the best recruiting company around. It's based in Chicago. They, they do US-based searches. They're fantastic. And you know what I did there was essentially switch sides of the table. Um, I actually had worked with Matt as an external for, for data recruiting, and then I became the recruiter. And so I learned so much in, in that process, just about uh, two key things I talk about when, when you're trying to recruit uh, specifically technical folks. There's always a reason for looking for a new job, and there's also a reason for leaving your current job. And it's sort of counterintuitive, but the reason for leaving tends to be the stronger thing for you can actually get someone to switch and, and come to your company. If they're just kind of curious about the space, that's usually not a strong enough motivator to actually go through the whole pain of interviewing, switching yeah. careers, the risk of starting somewhere that might not work out. So I always really listen for a reason for leaving. And the reason for leaving could be anything. I'm yeah. bored with this industry. My boss is not helping the interpersonal conflict. Those are the things um, when I meet with people, I always try to understand their path, but also really understand what are they reaching for and what's pushing them. 
And mm-hmm. so that's been really helpful to frame up conversations and to help people like who actually will want to search and just realize that searching for a new role is is a very stressful process. If you're, yeah. let's say you work at a startup and you have three interviews this week, you kind of maybe don't prepare and you just show up to the video call. That person's been thinking about it for a long time and preparing and rehearsing and maybe even studying questions. And so there's just an asymmetry there where you might interview tons of people and they might do this once every four or five years. Um, and so those are some of the things I've taken away from it. And I think it's, it's, it's really helped. I've wrote a lot of these down as well uh, on the refactor blog. And so I can link that up, but yeah, these yeah. are some of the things that helped us be successful in hiring. So when you, you take that and you apply, you apply it to especially early stage startups where you're having to sell. Mm-hmm. The vision and, and I know you, you all are much bigger now, but especially when you were getting started, I know attracting engineering talent in particular can be really tough because they can command high price points in the market. Maybe you don't have the, the same type of liquidity to, to help them that way. Yeah. You can pitch equity, but a lot of it is, do I really believe that this thing is going to become worthwhile? So a lot of it's like vision and things like that. What? It, how did you apply maybe the lessons that you learned from that process too, when you started Figment and you were trying to get your first engineering hires in the door, how did you apply that? Yeah, yeah. And so one thing that I, I thought about is what is this person's path forward? And I asked, usually when I, when I start an interview, the first thing I'll say is I've done my homework. I've seen the kind of things you've done. There's different ways you can take it. You can take your career in all sorts of different directions. What is your path forward? Do you know what we actually want to go do next? And just, I start there. I don't start with, you know, reading the resume. I usually ask, let them tell me what they want to go do. And then I say, look, I'll tell you what our path is and maybe they intersect and, and maybe they don't. Um, yeah. That's usually where I start. And so during that, someone might say something like, hey, look, I'm looking, f- I've, I've been very successful in my career. I'm looking to take a step back and I want to become a product manager. You know, I got to a senior level software engineer and I want to become a product manager. And so I'm going to take a step back and, and I want to enter this industry. Or they might say, I, what's really important to me is that I get to the next level of my career. And I think I could do that through leadership. And so you know, I want to come to you and try a leadership role. Like, so people always want to have something and it doesn't have to be a forever thing. You know, I think mm-hmm. equity is pitched usually pretty poorly. If you look at outcomes, like it's, it's very binary. Uh, usually yeah. it's like, this is the home run or you get nothing out of it. And so equity is important and it's about alignment and it's about people feeling like they're part of a company's progression. I think, um, engineers, for whatever reason, maybe it's just because our, my focus on the Midwest, you know, people are a bit more practical. They haven't seen that, what it can become, the outcomes. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's very challenging. So what I'd say for startups is know what you're offering and know that's not for everyone. Some people say, look, I want to work in a flat organization or I want to be highly collaborative in a sales process. I want to do a new product. And so there's yeah. more things you can, you can offer to people than just we're small and nimble. Like, and, and not everyone's going to want to go through the, uh, what you have to, to offer them. And that's okay. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So you were doing that. And then I think from our very first conversation too, you had at least been, I think dabbling is not doing you quite the justice. I mean, in terms of you were, you were a pretty early adopter in the whole crypto world. And you and I had been talking about some of the stuff you were doing yeah. in terms of mining and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. What got you into, I guess what you got, got in, into that in the first place. And then how did that lead you to? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those funny stories where I said earlier that there was no plan to another startup and actually it was not the plan. And so, but it's funny how when you make plans, life has a way of laughing at your plans. So I was working and and doing refactor recruiting and I was very open about this with my partner, Matt, but just basically saying like, Hey, like there's there's a lot of potential in this space. In this specific conversation that really kind of got me going is a friend reached out to me and the friend said, Hey, guess what? Like you, I just had a baby and uh, Hey, I want to upload and share the photos of my baby online. And I said, great. Click upload on any website. Why are you calling me? They said, well, if I upload my photos on Facebook, um, they're going to do facial recognition on my baby's face and sell me diaper ads. If I send it to you in a Gmail message, they read the contents of my email to you. Where can I upload my data where I own it and I have a right to privacy online? 
Yeah. And this is a very simple question. And I haven't really ever thought about the way the internet works. And it really set me back. And I answered with a very technical answer. I said, stand up an FTP server. And I said, what's FTP? And it's because not something you'd say to most people. And so this, th- I had a lot of time to think. And, and I, I didn't really know much about crypto and blockchain at the time. But I was just sort of thinking, okay, why do we communicate through these platforms, which track us, surveil us, take our data and sell to other people, all that kind of stuff. Why yeah. don't we communicate through protocols? Um, such as like, like email itself. You can stand up an email server, Sean. I can stand up an email server. We can communicate directly. There's no one in between us. Yeah. Why doesn't the internet actually work like that today? Now yeah. sort of the question I asked myself. And just being, I forgot, put on my heels a little bit with like, where can I, where can I safely upload my photos where no one's going to track me and I can have privacy? But that's how I, I started spiraling. And it wasn't about crypto. It wasn't about blockchains. It was more about the structure of the internet. And so that's what I trained my mind on is why don't we communicate more through protocols? Like a lot of the early internet designs. And so I started looking for that. And then in 2017, I totally fell down the, the rabbit hole. That's when I heard about Ethereum and I learned Solidity and I started, you know, I, I took a course and I started deploying smart contract. And the thing I, I really convinced myself of was there was really only two blockchains that were doing interesting things, in my opinion, in 2017. It was Ethereum uh, and Bitcoin. And, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of crappy clones. And I thought like, if this is really the start of an industry and the start of actually something bigger, why aren't there hundreds of blockchains? Why isn't yeah. there a ton of people trying this out? I'm from Flint, Michigan. So we have a lot of history of automotive industry. In the beginning, there was many, many automotive manufacturers, not just you remember the big, big few today. There was, you know, yeah. hundreds. Yeah. And so how do we do that for blockchain? That's what I started asking myself. So I was looking for protocols. I found these blockchain things. And then I said, how do we go from two to hundreds? And that's what I started looking for. And so then I found a technology which had been theorized and sort of tried a few times called proof of stake. It's not important that everyone knows what that is yet, but just to say it's an enabling technology that I thought could help hundreds of new blockchains launch. It'll all be very different from each other. And this is how we get this sort of explosion of new approaches. And so we took a bet and we said, in the future, most blockchains will use this technology. Let's get really good at it. And so what that meant, and this is one of the key lessons I have for people today is like, we didn't go and think about it and read a bunch of white papers. We said, here's the, here's uh, our, our first approach. We're going to become the VCs that invest in all these new blockchains. Figment Capital was born. And it totally meaning, I, I said, here's the thesis. We're going to invest in all these new blockchains. Here they come. But no one wanted to buy. And there were no LPs for that venture. And so I did some angel investments. And that was great. But the LP said, hey, like if there's going to be all these new blockchains, who, how's the infrastructure going to run? What's that going to look like? And so we changed the name of the company to Figment Networks and became an, it's an operating company, not a VC at all. And that is really what ended up taking off. And get into more details there, but that's how we got to where we were with the basic thesis that there should be a lot more blockchains trying a lot of new things. And if we yeah. have this experimentation at the infrastructure level, then maybe more killer apps can emerge. And so yeah. that's, that's how we got into it. So for folks that maybe um, aren't familiar, I guess, with, with kind of crypto in general, and even just the idea of kind of protocols, like, and I think this might get into kind of figment. We talk about like yeah. the infrastructure. What mm-hmm. what's the difference between a protocol? What's the difference between you know like to use Ethereum as an example and like lots of there's thousands of tokens at this point built on top of Ethereum. Are the what makes something a protocol versus just a token? What when you say that you built infrastructure to allow this proliferation of blockchains? Like what does that what does that mean? Like what are some of the the pieces of necessary pieces of that infrastructure in order for that to actually happen? Talk a little bit about just the the mental map, I guess, for folks yeah. to wrap their heads around it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, it's it's a great one to think about. I 
think about this simple narrative, which is um, we're trying to promote the use of protocols over platforms. And so let's maybe compare and contrast what I mean by that. And so these aren't going to be perfect definitions, but maybe a way for people to think about it. Email is a protocol where, you know, Sean, like I mentioned earlier, you could stand up an email server. I could stand up an email server. I could write my own email app. I could, I could create something like Outlook. I could create something like Gmail. And we're all using this same system because it's an open protocol. Anyone can, can sort of attach themselves to and start participating. Easy counterexample is think about Facebook. And remember when they had their big Facebook platform and people started building games on it? And then they yeah. said, we're shutting all you down. Yeah. It's a closed platform. And so that's maybe the first level. Strike. So I think about this is like platforms are usually owned by a, one company and they usually can kind of turn you on and turn you off. And whereas e, or most protocols are open protocols, these networks are sort of, there's no one who rules over it and that people can attach to it in different ways. The specification is very clear, all that kind of stuff. And so maybe that's the first level uh, uh, to start thinking about it is um, it, there's just been so many cases over time of developer platforms, people building onto them and then getting you know, pulled off them. Facebook. Twitter, Instagram. And so, but that has, has not happened with email. There's tons of people who are building on top of email and it's still going. Blockchains yeah. are sort of similar to that. Uh, meaning when you say you have a new protocol, it's sort of this open uh, standard that anyone can build to. They can build interfaces on top of, they can try and extend it, all those sort of things. And maybe that's the first way to start thinking about it. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the, th one of the questions that I think comes up a lot when you start talking about protocols and why there's a business model question that I think a lot of people mm -hmm. jump to fairly quickly, yes. which is like, all right, yes. it's just a protocol and it's open. How do I, as the creator and maybe not, maybe, maybe not maintainer of the protocol, yep. how do I turn that into a business? You know, it's a, it's a different paradigm, I think. It's one of the aspects. I mean, there's a lot of different paradigms in Web3 or crypto in general. That's one of them, I think, is like these, these your Avalanche, your Solana, your whatever it is. Like, how are these organizations, they're creating a tremendous amount of value in theory if you get adoption with them. But how does that how does that unlock value for them, for their investors, that type of thing? Yeah, this is where it's, it might take a, a bit to unpack some of this, but this is one of the, to me, really fun things about the space. One way to, to view crypto and blockchains is sort of the study of incentive design uh, yeah. and trying to coordinate large groups of people. And it's fascinating. There's all sorts of game theory. There's, there's all that involved in it. But the you, you hit on the really important part of it, which is why would anyone create any of these things? And so I'll try to unpack it. Just suffice to say that with the, the warning is it, it's a little bit complicated. We can go through... If anyone wants to kind of look at what the birth of one of these things looks like, there's a tremendous book called The Infinite Machine. Uh, it's about the history of Ethereum and just sort of the ethos behind it, how it got started, how is this the sort of fledging thing. I really recommend that book for anyone looking at this space. Infinite Machine is fantastic. Going through it, the way that it worked was they had this idea for Ethereum, which was this, this concept of smart contracts or these essentially scripts that could be run um, on their own. And so that you could have said, okay, great. Um, I will take a cut of the, the fees whenever anyone wants to pay to run these scripts or something like that. Yeah. But the, the company didn't cut themselves in in that way. Instead, they had this, this role you could play. And the role you could play was called a miner, um, which kind of uh, is sort of a, uh, a weird thing to, to call it. But suffice to say, there's a role where people are actually paid to execute these scripts. And so the company is not you know, taking a cut of that for themselves. In fact, yeah. there is no company. It's just called the Ethereum Foundation. So people who are creating the code are separate from the people who are sort of uh, taking a fee. But there is a role and they could go and do that as well. And so yeah. the, the, with this small example, I won't go into more details unless you want to go into it later. But like suffice to say... Usually people are creating roles or designing incentives. And then there's a few ways that the, the people who are creating it could, could sort of monetize their efforts. One is to go play that role themselves. They could be a miner. In this case, I don't think the Ethereum Foundation did that. The other is you could, if there is a token used to coordinate the network, you could give yourself a, a, a chunk of it. This is called a pre-mine. There's good pre-mines and bad ones and depending on how much you give yourself. Um, so like the, the first 
approximation is, are you going to earn into this network or are you going to sort of give yourself a, a pre-cut and sort of give enough to other people that they will participate? But mm-hmm. those, that's um, the thing there is like, I've not really, like one of those looks sort of like equity and one of those looks sort of like revenue. One, you mm-hmm. earn over time through effort. That's the mining. And one is sort of like just something you have and you hope it appreciates in value. Yep. Yeah. And so as you get more adopt, so you, you, you stand up a protocol, the protocol has a token, yep. you yep. give yourself or earn, otherwise earn a percentage of the token. That token is used to, that is how people transact on the protocol. And you either are giving yourself a portion of that, of those tokens in hopes mm-hmm. that as the protocol gains adoption, those become more valuable, or you basically are taking a cut of each transaction in the form of that token, but you're doing it. You're following the same rules that every other miner or participant. Yeah, is you're, you're providing work in, in return for it. You're not just getting sort of like a, a rake or whatever you might want to call yeah. it. Okay, so when you, yeah. when you talk about Figment and their role in this uh, as providing infrastructure, what kinds of infrastructure are necessary, and which of those pieces does Figment kind of fulfill? For sure. Yeah. So one of the big changes I mentioned earlier was we thought there would be this big change to this concept of called proof of stake. Um, At the time, you know, Bitcoin worked on proof of work and it will probably forever. Ethereum still works on proof of work, but it's transitioning to this technology. Our big bet was that there would be more than just those blockchains. They'd all use this new proof of stake technology. Speaking of incentive design, there's a role within these systems for the people that actually um, provide the the infrastructure or, or servers to it, which is called a validator. And I can get into the details there. Suffice to say, maybe an analogy is imagine uh, your credit card processing network, like Visa or MasterCard. Um, and when you swipe your, your credit card, uh, that transaction goes through and there's a network which verifies that it's valid and you get a response back, good or bad. Um, in blockchain protocols, it's not a company. It's not, you know, MasterCard, companies like Figment. We are one of many entities in a sort of a peer-to-peer or distributed or decentralized network who are verifying these transactions. Our job is to make sure that yes, this account, which wants to spend these funds, has the funds and they can make the transfer. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe one way to think about it is in proof of stake networks, there is a group of people who are the sort of infrastructure providers. Our job is to validate, we're validators that all these transactions are valid. And so similar to when you swipe your credit card with, with, you know, a MasterCard or Visa, um, the, the merchant takes a, a fee. There's a transaction fee. In most of these blockchains, there is a transaction fee as well. And mm-hmm. so that transaction fee is what is shared with people like Figment. So Got our it. business model is essentially um, we earn uh, transaction fees more people use blockchains. Mm-hmm. And you, because you believe, so you're, you're acting as validators on proof of stake networks because exactly. of your belief in that the world is going to see a proliferation of proof of, of blockchains and specifically a proof of stake blockchains. You're part of your job or your, your, your goal is to become validators on as many of those proof of stake blockchains as you can, or how do you, how do you, how do you make decisions on which ones you want to be validators for? Yeah, great, great question. So today we operate on 50 different networks. Um, and the way I think about this, there's a few different models we could take to it. One is to be very selective, almost like a VC and pick the winner in each category. And just, you know, let's be on a handful, five to 10. We've taken a very different approach, a much more promiscuous approach to say, we're not going to try to pick winners. Instead, we're going to, we're going to be like Charlie Munger and try to avoid the the, the clear losers. Let's try not to be dumb and try to try to be smart. The reason for that is the stage we're in is these are all just things that are launching. So to tie back to VC, we have more of like, do you remember 500 startups when they came out with yeah, sort of like their yeah. spray and pray model? 
it's, it's like that. And so from an operational perspective, what does that mean for our, our business? We have we need a pretty large DevOps team that can go in and try to figure all these things out and try to stand mm-hmm. up you know, networks. And so that that strategy has mostly worked. If you look at our business, the the way which networks we earn money on is, is of course, has a distribution which looks like a power law or at least 80-20 uh, type sure. of distribution. There's a handful of networks that, that currently um, uh, have most of the returns for us. However, mm-hmm. our ability to predict those ahead of time is very low. And even today, it's very low. It's, it's unclear which ones are going to work. Last mm-hmm. year, Solana came on into the scene and became a you know, very popular network. You know, yeah. But uh, in 2020, that was not obvious. Uh, but that's, yeah. that's when we adopted the network. And that's when we started running on it. So that's a, a bit how we think about this process. One of the things that comes up a lot in conversations I've had with people, again, getting to the proliferation of blockchains is they, they go and they, and even on our, our, and the venture side of our business, we get pitched, not a ton, yeah. because they're not known as a crypto fund, but one of the questions that comes up is like, what's the point of all of the different protocols? And you mentioned kind of categories yep. and investing in like sectors. And it sounds like you implied in that is that you envision different protocols serving different purposes and things like that. I know that like a Solana or an Avalanche or whatever, a lot of the reasons why they've gotten adoption has to do with the the transaction the expenses uh, the expenses related to transacting on the ethereum blockchain because it got it got expensive to do gas or whatever and they're much much cheaper but how do you think about that landscape fast forward five years ten years I know a bunch of them will fail but the ones that succeed like what are some of the the use cases I guess that that require a different protocol for this purpose versus a different protocol for this purpose how do you think about like the sectors I guess that each need their own yep. protocol yeah, yeah. So what I would say is there's really two approaches that I think are being pursued in parallel and maybe they will succeed and maybe they won't succeed. One is what I call a general purpose blockchain. Mm-hmm. Ethereum is a general purpose blockchain. All sorts of stuff runs on it. Trying to do it at the same time. Solana yeah. is also a general purpose blockchain. The, the opposite approach is something called the application specific blockchain. Instead of sharing in uh, the limiting factor, which is really called block space, uh, we can get into that detail if, if you want or not, but like if, if you're either going to be sharing block space with the rest of the world or you're going to have your own chain, which is just dedicated to you. Yeah. So Solana, Ethereum, these are examples of general purpose blockchains where many transactions from all sorts of different applications are being jammed into blocks together. And mm-hmm. the limiting factor is block space. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you're paying for. You're paying for inclusion in a block. And so the other approach, which is uh, application specific, there's a few different approaches to this. There's a few ecosystems. One is called the Cosmos ecosystem. Another yeah. one's called Polkadot. The idea here is, hey, instead of trying to have everyone go into one super fast general purpose blockchain, what if this looked actually more like the design of the internet where everyone has their own little space? And so to try to draw an analogy, when I stand up a website, I have my own server and my server connects to the internet. You can think of each of these new blockchains on Cosmos as their own little server, right? It's the implementation is different. It's a decentralized blockchain, but they all connect to each other and they, and they sort of communicate. And so whatever I'm doing on my own chain is just for me. And then when I want to talk to you, I make a transaction across the chain. So these are the two sort of competing approaches, which is general purpose blockchains and application specific blockchains. I don't know if one will win. I think they'll both keep succeeding in parallel, but this is one of the great experiments going on right now. Yeah. Um, and so where last year was last year proved that people care about cheap transactions uh, that happen fast. And that's why you see the prolifer- proliferation of Solana. Polygon yeah. is another one on top of Ethereum. But yeah. I think this year and going to next year, we'll really see Cosmos ecosystem and then maybe later Polkadot ecosystem with this yeah. application specific approach. So when you say application specific, like what is co- like, it, yeah. it, I mean, the Cosmos and the Polkadot, they have a specific use case where it's appropriate to build on their protocol or sure. is it more yeah. like, yeah. 
And what are what are there those use just as an example? What are those use cases? Where yeah, yeah. A, a simple example. Yeah, simple example is on Ethereum. There's a popular decentralized exchange called Uniswap. Mm-hmm. Uniswap implements this idea of an automated market maker. Basically, you can trade without having to go to a, a centralized exchange like Coinbase. Yeah. Okay. Uniswap yeah. exists within Ethereum. It, there's a ton of other DApps running on Ethereum. In Cosmos, there is a, a similar uh, type of application, a decentralized exchange. It's called Osmosis, and it's its own blockchain. If you want to transact on Osmosis, they have their own blockchain. They have their own group of, I think, 100 validators, which are doing just that. If you want to transfer your token to it, you transfer your token into this this place. You do your trading, and then you transfer it back out to wherever you want to use it. So that's yeah. just a, a very different approach. And so bridging all these different chains together, that's a, another really hot topic at the end of last yeah, year, this year, yeah. which is... Yeah. yeah. If you believe in this sort of multi-chain future, then interoperability is super important. Bridging is super important. And just kind of share how I, I, I sort of think about this. Like my view on this is that the demand for block space is infinite in the same way that the demand for hard drive space is infinite. And the more that you make something cheap and easy to consume, the more people actually use it. And so as hard drives got faster, like I remember when I installed the first one gigabyte drive in our home PC. And I remember my friend's dad said, what are you going to do with one gigabyte of space? Like it was unfathomable. They could ever use a gig for anything. But as yeah. it got cheaper, of course, we use more and more of it. And so my view is the demand for block space is infinite, the same as the demand for hard drive space is infinite. And therefore, we need to have a lot of different approaches. Solana can't win because there has to be many, many approaches. And so that sort of leads you to if there's going to be more than one blockchain, you have to figure out how to connect them together. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit how I think about it. Got it. Okay. So yeah. um, pretty fascinating. What are some of the things, I guess, as you've, as you've learned to build on top of these protocols and to build validators that kind of work for each of them? What have you learned about going through that process? I would assume that a lot of them, because like you mentioned, Ethereum is, I don't know if it's technically considered open source, but effectively it's open mm-hmm. source, right? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. I would imagine that you're able to take kind of like open source software, you're able to take design patterns and things like that from someone else who built an authentication engine or whatever it is. And rather than reinvent the wheel every single time, you can probably borrow a lot from it. So how similar or dissimilar are these protocols when you're trying to bring in, trying to build up stand up a validator on each, each new one? Is it like 80% of similar design patterns and you're just dealing with the 20% or is it, are they, are they really experimenting from like a, first principles perspective at this point? Yeah. 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 It's, it's a great question, Sean. And what I'd say is we have the emergence of the, the, the equivalent of Ruby on rails coming in into the space now. And that's actually this thing called Cosmos. Uh, Cosmos has something called the Cosmos SDK. Polkadot has something called Substrate, but it is sort of trying to get these patterns for, I want to go and get the equivalent of an MVC app running. And yeah. you can do that with your blockchain. And so whenever we see a new blockchain that's launching and using one of those patterns, very easy for us to pick it up right away. That yeah. said, there's a ton of novel new layer ones coming out. And so we have to work on those as well. And so it's, it's a mix of both those things. And so what I would say is usually if I could correlate it, the, the new novel ones, these are the sort of chains which are trying to be general purpose chains. The more application specific are using the, the sort of Cosmos SDK, using the equivalent of Ruby on Rails to try to get their, their application going fast. Because what matters is not having a new novel consensus mechanism at the lowest levels. What matters is the actual interface and the user experience and how quickly can they work on, on the app layer, essentially. Um, that's mm-hmm. how we're seeing it play out. The other thing I'd say just step up a layer, because I think I heard this in one of your questions, was, let's say that you don't want to create your own new blockchain. You just want to run, run an application or create a DAP. Or make a yeah. smart contract. Yeah. One thing we're seeing is the uh, the use of uh, sort of reusable tools. Here's a good example. When I was making web apps, I would love to use Facebook Connect, setting aside issues with Facebook because the user could just log in. You know, single yeah. sign-on is fantastic. I don't have to do user management. We're having yeah. like those kind of middleware. 
that's showing up now. Just today was in a big announcement for a protocol called Ceramic. It does many different things, but one way to think about it is to say like, it's sort of like Facebook Connect. Uh, I can have a single profile, which actually I own, not Facebook. That's the big difference. And then I can use it to log into all sorts of different websites. And so yeah. um, to me, these metalware tools are coming. It's got to make the, the, the DAP creation experience much, much better. Makes sense. What's the role? Is there a role, I guess, when you talk about you're going to be a validator on these different networks? Is there a relationship that you build or that you have with the developers of the protocols? And if so, what matters there? What matters for them in you as a validator? What matters for you in them as a protocol? Like how much are you interacting? Because I know you can technically... Anybody, I could be a validator on Ethereum yep. today if I want yep. to, if I have enough ETH to put towards it. Yep. You don't necessarily yep. have to interact with them, but I, I assume you are. Why and like what's important there as you're trying to think about those relationships? It's a fantastic question, Sean. And what I'll say is we, we think one of the reasons why we've been successful is because we think about the life cycle of a network from conception of the idea to launching it and being successful. And there's a number of things we can do to provide value along the way. So I mentioned we, we started as a, tried to start as Figment Capital and that failed as a VC fund. But that's actually usually one of the first things that, that new protocols need is some sort of, this looks like a standard pre-seed deal. Usually there's an operating company, uh, you can invest in equity of it and we, we do this frequently. And so, uh, providing capital, just like any other startup, that's usually one of the first things that's needed as they get from concept into some sort of implementation. The next thing you need to do is um, to have a decentralized network. You need to recruit a, a number of different players like Figment, one of our company, but you need a number of other people. You need a decentralized network. You need 50, 100 different type of people. So recruiting that infrastructure set, that, that role, I said earlier, there's people, this is about incentive design, right? You create a role of validators. You need to bring those people in. You need to make them interested in what you're doing. So that's the yeah. second thing that we do. Now, the thing to know is there is the equivalent of a development environment. It's called a test net. You want to bring people into your test net process to help you find bugs faster, help you sort of iterate more quickly. And so that's the second way that Figment adds value is we participate in these networks at the sort of test net phase. Yeah. As your test net starts working, there's a lot of people who are confused about at that point, it's a team with some code, but no one's ever heard of what the project's doing. One way we add value is we, we assign people who are called protocol analysts or protocol experts within Figment to actually learn about the protocol and then start not quite evangelizing it, but just describing it. We do these yeah. uh, series of blog posts. F- first look at new blockchain and just yeah. helping people understand it. It helps, helps them recruit. Once they launch and go to mainnet, then the, the way we can start adding value is the next question is like, how can we get users? And so this, we have a, another product called Data Hub, which makes it easy for people to build on top of blockchains. We bring developers to them. And so these are a number of things we do along the way uh, to try to add value. And, um, you know, you can see how early we're trying to engage. We, our model yeah. is to try to engage with the, these protocols very early on uh, so we can yeah. help them be successful because our business only works if there's real usage of blockchains long-term. But just mm-hmm. launching these things and doing ICOs, like that is a very short-term thing. If you go back to the business model of Visa and MasterCard are great businesses because people use the dang thing all the time, we need people yeah. using blockchains all the time. And so that's how we're oriented. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Except, except for like, we, we haven't really hit on this, but I'll hit on it very quickly, which is like, why are there tokens at all? And why do you have to pay for transactions? Yeah. I, I, I said, I said email earlier, there is no transaction fee. And so what I you get is, spam yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the, the most of these networks have a token, uh, usually to pay for the transaction fees. And yeah. so I mentioned block space, block size, block space is a finite thing. You need to pay to be included. That's where this, this, this all comes from. So I, I want to make sure that anyone uh, who's sort of confused, like, do you need tokens? Are these tokens sort of foisted on? It's, this is what we're trying to solve for is, yeah. uh, this sort of spam problem, actually. 
So as a firm, you're taking on risk by, you know, placing bets and certain, and, and I, I get that you're casting a much wider net than, than most, but, but you're still taking, there's opportunity cost, right? So, and it's going to take time for you to, if you're, if you're collecting a percentage of fees based on transactions that happen on the protocol, yep. that's going to ramp up as people. So you're obviously incentivized to promote it that way. Is there, are there other incentives though, in terms of like, Hey, I'm coming in and I'm providing, you know, seed capital and I'm providing like, et cetera, et cetera. I would imagine that there's benefit, like just like the, these people, a lot of their value creation, like the equity side of it is through the yeah. pre-mine or whatever it is. And then they're mm -hmm. hoping that they get a token at a penny and it becomes worth a dollar later on. Yeah. Are there incentives for getting involved with these protocols that early? I know there's a tension. You mentioned there's good pre-mines and bad pre-mines. So I would imagine yeah. there's a PR component to this about, the degree mm -hmm. to which they incentivize validators like you all, but yep. does that kind of totally. stuff happen to you where you get to benefit from a revenue perspective and an equity perspective? hundred percent. So, I mean, I said earlier, the fun thing about the space is incentive design. Um, in the startup world, we have pretty standard terms now. When, when you're a founder and, and you start a company in a VC investing, you have a four-year vesting. Um, mm -hmm. with a one-year cliff, like this very, very standard stuff, right? Yeah. In, in crypto, it's, it's all over the place. Sometimes yeah. there's vesting, sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's unlocking daily. There's all sorts of different uh, sort of things here. And so one of the things, like I said earlier, we try to avoid bad projects as opposed to try to pick the winners, right? So yeah. some of the tells that it's maybe a bad project is there's no concept of vesting. We are actually okay working with an anonymous, an anonymous team. Some people really wince at this idea, like I need to know the yeah. bar, I need to run background checks. We're okay working with an anonymous team if the incentives are, are aligned correctly. And yeah. so to me, like if you say, like, okay, the team is giving themselves 75% of the token, and they're 25% they're to try to bring more people on. Like that's a bad sign, right? And so, yeah. um, but these things happen all the time. And so, there, uh, I would just say, yeah, go like good, good percentages generally. Are there are there kind of rules of thumb that are starting to emerge around that stuff? I, I would say we're not there yet, but we see everything. But I would say things that I like to see a lot are not. If there's a big chunk of the the, the token allocation, which is allowing people to to earn it as opposed to being given away. Yeah. So one way you can earn it is through being a validator. Another way you can earn it is through there's like this. We haven't even touched on this concept of governance, but I actually control the, the future development. But yeah. in general, that's my my what I look for is like how much will 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 people be able to earn into this network as opposed to buy into this network. Mm -hmm. That's something I look for. And so and, and this probably will become outdated later. But for me, if teams that give themselves more than like twenty five percent of the token supply, that's usually a red flag for me. Investors investors who own more than like twenty five or thirty percent and that's usually a flag for me. But everything yeah. is, is really specific to, to each each situation. It seems like you were talking earlier about equity as it relates to employees. It seems like both from like a from a from an investor perspective and an employee perspective, yes, you want to have some sort of investing schedule or something like that. But it seems like assuming that assuming that you're you're receiving tokens as at least part of your you know equity compensation one huge benefit here is you, you mentioned binary outcomes like you're avoiding a binary yep. outcome because you have liquidity like i can get yep. out at any time for at least the stuff that's vested are you seeing that as yep. being a huge plus in terms of attracting i guess attracting team members to either to you all or to protocols themselves and, and then like as you're seeing as you all get involved in these protocols and then as you're seeing other investors maybe come alongside, is that one of the big benefits is the liquidity kind of aspect to it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is, I'd say it's one of the challenges as well, because if you talk to any good sort of VC, they'll tell you that illiquidity is actually one of the best things about being, because they can't sell when they, they might have yeah. panic sold, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so we, 
yeah. So a lot of these, so a lot of these, the, yeah. The way this works is like you, you will have liquidity before before an IPO. Let's say an average duration to IPO is seven or eight years or something like that. Maybe it's getting shorter for a startup. Yeah, you yeah. can have liquidity as soon as your 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 cliff clears. Maybe that's in six months. And mm-hmm. so liquidity management is something uh, which can be attractive, but also some people really regret. And so yeah. um, in terms of selling too early. And so this is one of the things that we look for when we're getting involved. Like we want to see uh, a cliff that's at least six months, hopefully a year before they can get liquidity because yeah, it changes motivations. It, it changes everything. Yeah. And so it, it's really, it's, I would say we don't have best practices yet. Um, yeah. These things are still sort of emerging, but we know things to avoid. We've seen some things that haven't gone very well. Yeah. One of the, one of the other kind of, um, ideas that's been around but has gotten traction in particular in the last 12 months i think is the idea of like a dao or a decentralized mm-hmm. autonomous organization as as a you know mentioned as a yep. governance structure what yeah what have you learned about getting involved in protocols as a validator or just as an investor or whatever in whatever context in a dao based governance model versus like a non dao based governance model like how what, yeah. what are the nuances there yeah, yeah. So Figment actually has uh, launched a DAO. And so I'll okay. give the setup. It'll take me about 30 seconds and I'll describe how your question. So one of the things we said is our mission is we want to increase the usage of blockchains. And we see the current bottleneck is actually not enough developers. So we created a free resource called Figment Learn that put out tons of tutorials up about how to launch a smart contract on Network X, how to do this, how to how to create a clone of Uniswap. And so, you know, we, we created hundreds of tutorials and we've had tens of thousands of developers go through that. And we created a model where we started crowdsourcing it. We would give, we'd send tokens to people who write the content. This is all going great. And, you know, in the last year, I think we sent out half a million dollars of tokens to people um, wow. who created the content. And so we, what I asked the team is I said, great, we've had tens of thousands of developers who've onboarded and we've converted these Web2 developers and they're working in the space now. How do we do a million developers in 2022? And so we said, okay, system design, what's the bottleneck? The bottleneck was actually us. The bottleneck was us uh, approving the content, editing the content, sending out the tokens. And so we said to earlier, this idea of incentive design, what roles can we enable the community to take on? And so we, we turned Figment Learn, this sort of centralized way for us to create tutorials, into a DAO, into a community where now, uh, through incentivizing people with the token, there's people who are the editors and they get yeah. paid to do that. There's people who are coming up with ideas and there's people who are writing the content and there's people who are going yeah. through the content. And so these are all different roles you can have and they're all sort of working together with a, with a, with a token. And what's fascinating is like, this is becoming people's jobs now. Like they're yeah. working for the DAO. And so wow. the question then is, is, is how is this governed? And so, I would say governance is one of these things where now that we have this token, it's very easy to say, okay, vote based on the number of tokens you have. This is called sort of colloquially one token, one vote. I think this is going to end terribly. I think that there's going to be a ton of governance blowups. Governance in crypto is one of the great opportunities. Is that because of Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's two things, centralization and lack of participation. And so... Um, like people might not be aware that there's even a vote happening, you know? Yeah. So like who, who has the incentive to go popularize a vote or like put the word out about a vote. So yeah. it's what you see in like sort of like re- regional politics, right? Like 500 people showed up for this important vote or something. So one token, one vote. And so I think that this is one of the areas where I think we'll have to see a lot of, my point is to say that governance is a great opportunity. The current implementations are all very, very basic. I mean, there's an opportunity to do something really interesting. For example, yeah. instead of one token, one vote, you could say like, well, who's actually participated in the network or 
let's do it based on how long you've held the token for. So you can't just come in and buy up everything and vote the next day. Maybe you have yeah. to have the equivalent of a vesting period before you have governance rights. And so there's lots of things that can be done. I would say we're going to see a ton of blowups and DAOs. I think a ton of DAOs are just going to totally fold. But this is part of the experimentation. Yeah. So the idea of, 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 of we're going to see a lot of things that have already failed uh, be tested again. Uh, yeah. But I think it's, it's, it's cool. It's cool to see. I think something good will come out of it. And we created the DAO not because we wanted to like get a token and, and do all this stuff. We thought it's a way to have the biggest impact. We thought we could yeah. actually 10x our, our impact by bringing the, bringing the group in and incentivizing everyone to work together as opposed to working through us as a gatekeeper. A lot of DAOs maybe don't have the, have the same goal and maybe the governance is going to be different. But Do you advise protocol? So, so they're working with you all, as you mentioned, they need validators to secure the network and to authenticate transactions. Yeah. Early on, as they're trying to get adoption, how do they think about avoiding some of the like centralization pitfalls because i would imagine that like the amount of i don't know what you would call it staking power or whatever it is in the beginnings especially for you all you probably have a lot of the validator juice being applied to it how do how do they think about or how should they think about partnering with organizations like yours how to ensure that it's as distributed as possible especially in the early days when mm-hmm. nobody knows about it yet yeah, yeah. What you're talking about here is, is super important. You know, one of the big knocks on this idea of proof of stake is that uh, cartels will form. And then if you get you know 66% of the vote, you can essentially ruin the network. Big right. issue, something we, we talked a lot about in 2018, 2017. To me, it's one of these things where we, we thought a lot about it. We haven't really seen it happen yet, but we think it, it could still happen. It's, it's an ongoing issue. And so the, the thing to think about is what are the centralization points or what are the token aggregation points? And this is my personal opinion. The biggest risk to proof of stake is that people stake through exchanges. Binance oh. say has, let's say they have 40% of all of the token and everyone's staking. And then Binance has a validator that controls 40% of the network. Yeah. This is a big risk. I think Binance has, Binance has, has noticed this and they're taking steps to sort of uh, remove themselves from this. But like, this is a big risk. And so that's, that's one issue I see. That's, but you're, you don't get out into Binance until you're scaled up and there's, and all that kind of stuff. In the beginning, this is actually one of the, the, the things that I need, or people should really watch out for is how, how people can actually get uh, possession of the tokens and, and what happens over, over time. Because mm-hmm. if the, if the team holds it pretty closely and they just delegate to one validator, of course that won't work. And so there's actually whole programs now to sort of like have people apply to be sort of what are called Genesis validators are the first ones. They try to have an even distribution, but yeah, you, you can track all this stuff. And we, we are one of the first people to make this, this block explorer for proof of stake called Hubble. And you can see, you can see how Figment has done over time. And we tend to be between five to 10% of a network and we feel good about yeah. But yeah, if we became much bigger, we would actually probably actively we try to actively our our amount stake to us or it's what's called the voting power you call it staking power it's, yes that's, that's that's what it's called um, it. but yeah it's 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 an ongoing issue and so that the, the goal is there are some schemes to actually disincentivize disincentivize the people who are staking to, to not stake to figment if we get too big like your rewards go down or something like that but yeah this is one of the areas where there's a lot of uh, hand wringing about it and so far it hasn't come to fruition but maybe because everyone's been talking about it for so long yeah you mentioned your vision is to get more people adopting blockchain. I, might, I probably butchered it, but yeah. basically. Um, yeah. And protocol protocols are a big part of that. That's where you're sitting yeah. kind of in yeah. the ecosystem. But in order for protocols to get adoption, yeah. people need to be building stuff on top of protocols. If you're, If you were advising a dev team or a startup team or whatever, and they have an idea for... Let's say a general, like it's a general purpose type of thing, or yeah. like they could choose from one of many different protocols. What are some of the considerations yeah. that you would advise them to keep in mind 
as they're making a decision, like, especially if they decide I'm going to go all in on, on this ecosystem or this, this protocol, because that seems yeah. like it could be, we talk about reversible decisions and irreversible decisions, choosing mm-hmm. the wrong protocol and having the protocol itself implode seems like a pretty bad problem. So how, how, how would you recommend yeah. making decisions around protocol choice? Yeah. And so what I'd say is, is each of these different 50 networks run has a team of people trying to answer this exact question. Um, which is why should a developer choose to build on us or to build on someone else? And it's definitely got to be nuanced. And we even, I mentioned we're, we're doing that DAO called Builder DAO. We had to choose which, which uh, network give you how we thought about it. And yeah. It's a pretty simple framework, but you know, we are trying to onboard a ton of new people in the space. So yeah. we want to make that as cheap and, and frictionless as possible. So we did not build that on Ethereum. We actually did build on Solana because when we talked to people, we, we looked at who was using our product. And where are the developers coming from? Number one, Singapore. Number two, Lagos, Nigeria. And number three was Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam. And so when we, we talked to those users and we said, like, you know, what if we did this on Ethereum? They said, well, like, I can't pay for the gas fees. This is not a welcoming space for me. And so there's a whole different debate about what is Ethereum for? And maybe it should only be for high value use cases. For us, trying to onboard a ton of people, it didn't make sense to be there. And yeah. so that's how we work backwards into something like Solana. The tokens on enough places, people, people can get it now. There's good enough wallets to use it, and they're having some some road bumps and hiccups along the way in scaling, but like it's mostly usable. And so that's how we got to where we're at. And so we work backwards from like just even like a basic UX of like, can people acquire the token? Yes. Is it yeah. prohibitively inexpensive? You can't do that. And that's how we did it. But like there, like the Solana has some good things going for it, has some bad things going for it. And so like this is how protocols are all competing with each other, especially in, in sort of the, the general. Uh, the general protocol space, which is why should I choose this over that? What are the special things you can do for me? Well, you see things people do to lean in. Like the Solana has a, has a core team, which they actually uh, are investing pretty heavily in marketing. They're investing in developer experience. They're helping you get going. Some people do that. Some people don't. Like Ethereum is just a foundation yeah. and they, they act at a much more removed level. And so there's a ton of, we've only really talked about the Ethereum and Solana a lot today, but there's, there's many other ones who are sort of buying for developers. And so yeah. that's at least how we thought about it. Got it. You mentioned marketing. I would imagine you've learned from what I've seen, not the rules, but the way that you market blockchain projects is completely different mm-hmm. than really anything mm-hmm. else. What are some of the things maybe you've learned just through osmosis or secondhand, or even as you've applied it to Figment itself in terms of getting adoption for projects like this? It seems like community management is a piece of it. Like, What are some of the other lessons that you've learned? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the cool things is I mentioned, I've, I've hit on the idea of incentive design quite a bit. The best chains that have launched and done really well, actually, they, they incentivize their super fans. And so you can do this through tokens, you can do this all sorts of things, but they actually give the people who, who are the community and, and, and you can sort of create a, a bit of an army in this way. And so yeah. there's all sorts of incentive designs we can go into and how that works. But that's the general principle is that for people who are willing to do the work and sort of be your sort of guerrilla marketing team, they, there's incentives to do that. And I think, I think it's something that this has worked very, very well. And you sort of get to some of the good aspects of sort of cult behavior. There's tons of things going there in terms of psychology of community and teams. And when you have skin in the game with money and tokens, like this, there's a lot at play here. And this is why the space is so fun. But just suffice to say, this is the big thing that's different is let's say you launch um, a new website and you have a, a big fan and your forums are going crazy. Um, they don't have any really input in your success except for just seeing it work. And so this is just a, maybe a more direct or blunt way to actually have them align. Mm-hmm. But giving tokens or having having your community earn tokens through through activities or sometimes they're called bounties as well. They could be technical or non-technical. Yeah. And that's something we've seen do, do really, really well. Got it. Interesting. 
<laughs> Such a crazy space. One of the, one of the, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that some of the the tools and infrastructure that you've built is useful in an enterprise context as well. Is that accurate? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just wondering because it comes up a lot, especially like legacy the legacy financial systems. It's like depending on who you ask, like one of the goals of 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 crypto land is literally to like build an completely alternative financial ecosystem. And to a large degree, it Mm -hmm. seems like these legacy players, these incumbents have almost no role. Like they, they, they don't understand it. They've poo pooed it. Now they might be getting a little bit scared. I don't know, but like, it's, it sure seems like there's an opportunity. I mean, obviously there's like an innovator's dilemma kind of piece to this, but it seems like there are opportunities or there must be opportunities for enterprise organizations to stop, just sticking their heads in the sand and actually start playing a role in this world. What do you, what do you see there? Like, what do you see their role being, if any, how could they, if they want to start dipping their toes in this stuff, start participating? Mm-hmm. What do you see there? Yeah. So what you might've noticed, if you read closely, our series C announcement is we brought a number of these folks uh, under our cap table, they invested in figment and they're participating in this space. And so, you know, I'll call out some of the ones that are public, I think, who are doing a great job. One is Fidelity. I think what they're doing is, is pretty compelling in that they are not just um, trying to uh, say, like, you know, we have this term called DeFi, which is decentralized finance. It's a lot of is recreating um, a lot of traditional yeah. finance just in maybe maybe more efficient ways or, or ways which um, maybe cut out some of the middleman fees. Like, that's a whole theme. And, of yeah. course, I think Fidelity has a place to play there. But I think what we've seen from them is they're doing things that are much more innovative and participating in protocols uh, and they're, do, they're participating in protocols. Like a good example is there's this whole concept called an Oracle. An Oracle is how do you get sort of data that's not on a blockchain onto a blockchain and how do you verify it's, it's real data? And just participating in those. And so we've, we've just seen organizations like that, not just try to recreate um, what, what they're doing, with, which they are. Like anyone yeah. who's, a, who's a brokerage is probably now giving the access to crypto tokens as they should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we're seeing them actually do a lot more. And so it's everything from they're running validators. Mm-hmm. They're using a provider like Figment to run a validator for them, or they're contributing data to these Oracle systems. And so what, what I would say is they're doing it for two reasons. One is the customers are demanding um, some sort of access to this, but also they see an opportunity. They see a revenue opportunity. They see a way where they don't want to get left behind. And so the good news I'll say is that compared to when we started, our customers have changed drastically and they're much more mature. And people are more than just interested at this point. We've moved beyond the task force. We've moved now into sort of like actual implementations, actual POCs. Um, yeah. We're not quite yet at full deployment, but it's much sure. more than just, you know, we have a team of people who are meeting once a quarter to talk about it. There's actual things happening now. Got it. Well, that's exciting. You mentioned, yeah. um, you yeah. know, creating stuff for the customers. And, and again, in your, your, your vision to increase adoption of this, you got, you need, you need good protocols so that you, and you get good developers you need, in order yep. for you to have good developers, they need to have users. It yep. seems like usability remains, and you hinted at some of this already, just mm-hmm. as it continues to be a huge blocker. So like even just getting on an exchange and doing all the KYC stuff, especially when you talk mm-hmm. about going cross chain, yep. it's just a pain in the neck. So like, what are some of the things that you're, I guess, excited about maybe that are going to help cross the chasm, I guess, from early adopters to more of a majority of people getting onboarded? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that'll impact onboarding is crypto coming to places where people already have accounts. I mentioned brokerages. Robinhood famously added crypto and PayPal did too. But one thing that maybe people didn't understand was you can't actually take the tokens out. (laughs) They essentially are giving you synthetic price exposure. 
You don't actually yeah. own the thing. Yeah. That is changing. Now you can transfer tokens out of these platforms, which is fantastic. And so yeah. to me, yeah, I think that step one was fine to get people exposed to this and get them interested. But now you can actually take the tokens with you and use them. To me, like I think that that is going to be the biggest change is that all these platforms, Venmo, PayPal, Robinhood, all those places where people already have accounts, and will now allow you to actually ship tokens out of their, which, which is going to be huge. And so before you were just getting exposure to the price, now you can actually take custody and ownership of the token. That's going to be the biggest thing that's going to increase. Of course, Coinbase and FTX, all the exchanges are, are doing everything they can to get people to onboard through them. Yeah. I think that these these other other people are going to be the biggest thing that gets more people using using crypto. Very cool. Well, this is, hey, listen, this has been, I want to be respectful of your time. This has been, it, it's like jumping into, as I explained to friends and family about like why, like, I mean, it's just still so wild westy, but it's just like intellectually gratifying in a way that I think is unlike most things that I've at least encountered in my professional career. So I would imagine it's the same for you. For folks that want to learn more, I guess, about Figment and what you all are up to, where, where should I send them? Sure. Yeah. What, uh, I'll answer that question. But first, the, the thing I'll say, Sean, is the company's called Figment because it's sort of, this could be, it's a figment of your imagination. And so I think yeah. we remain skeptics, but we're also optimistic. And so we, we're coming at this space uh, with this sort of mind frame of, could there be a better way? And so we are not sort of going out and trying to promote tokens and everyone buy these things and, and pump and dump. We are still skeptic, even though we, we see and are encouraged by all the progress. Uh, we're still still skeptical. But also, like I would say, we're seeing real adoption. We're seeing real use cases. Talk to anyone outside of, of uh, our little bubble of, of North American startups and people are actually using these things quite a bit. And so I'm excited about that. And so that, that's maybe the, the closing thought is to say, based on where we started and based on where we are now, like real people are using this as, as it passes the toothbrush test. You're, you're yeah. using it every day. And so yeah. um, if you want to come find more about us, our website is figment.io. Our website is really geared towards people who are already in the space. So if it doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. You know what we're talking to, to sort of the, the converted already. But yeah. For folks that wanted to dig more into the, the the builder kind of side of it, is that a different place or is it the same same spot? Yes. Yeah. So so that's uh, called BuilderDAO. If you search Builder D-A-O, BuilderDAO, you'll find uh, our website there. Very cool. I'm going to, I've been telling my wife, like, I want to do coding with my kids, but I'm like, why not start with, solidity or something like that. Well, it seems like the future is going to be, there's a non-zero chance that that will be a much more <laughs> useful skill. Yeah. Than, so anyway. Yeah. yeah. If you want to do that, just go to learn.figment.io. Yeah. You'll see a whole bunch of tutorials and there's definitely the one-on-ones to get started. So thanks, yeah. Sean. Very cool. Thanks so much. Man. I appreciate it. My guest today was Andrew Kronk. For more ideas on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time.